Hey, New Life family, welcome to the weekly podcast. We want to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. We hope this message encourages you and helps you in some way today move forward in your relationship with Christ and others. We pray God blesses you wherever you are today. Now enjoy the message. Last week, but I feel even more intensified the weight of this, the vein in which the Holy Spirit, I believe, is is taking us down. And then uh, the Lord willing, uh, for the month of December, we're going to we're going to speak on something else, but I know without a shadow of a doubt we will revisit this because I feel it that strongly in my spirit. And if you remember, we talked out of, we're going to go to a different uh, set of scriptures today, but the last couple of weeks we was, we was really in uh, the book of Psalms, how there were several occurrences where David or the sons of Korah or different different authors in the book of Psalms was talking about gatekeepers and being a gatekeeper uh, in the house of God and that it is a distinct position, yet at the same time, it's a lowly position, but it's equally an important decision. So it's, it's lowly in nature compared to human eyes, but compared to the kingdom of God, it is an incredibly important uh, position. And so oftentimes when we think about becoming a gatekeeper in the spirit, we think God is not really asking us to do anything but to open and close a door or just to, you know, what, whatever is in our mind that we preconceived a gatekeeper is. But when you start digging into Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, you find uh, an incredible amount of weight and importance that people put on gatekeepers. And we're going to read a little bit in in the uh, Old Testament, but predominantly we're going to read what Jesus had to say about uh, being a gatekeeper. And so we we will be in the New Testament Uh, Turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 13. I don't know if I've already given you that. Mark 13, we're going to start off in a few verses at the end of this chapter of Mark 13. Go with me to verse 32. The one thing that I told you last week that I will repeat is this. The revivalist and incredible minister back in the turn of the century, who is in, and a lot of books have been written about his sermons, about his life, and just about his uh, experiences slash adventures, if you want to call it that, uh, in, in the Spirit of God, and is, is the man by Leonard Ravenhill. And one of his famous quotes that he is known for saying is, And you have to understand his life, the incredible amount of people that he ministered to, the incredible amount of revelation that he received from God on his knees, the incredible amount of depth that he went in in studying the word of God so that the Holy Spirit could bring out. So he was not a shallow person at all. Yet this man was so meek and humble in his spirit that he quoted quoted himself by saying this, When I get before the throne of my God, may I not be one who is standing knee deep in ashes of my own kingdom building. Meaning, when I present my works before the Lord, 
May his eyes of fire that's going to look at what I present him not burn up my works like ash and they crumble to the ground because I built up my kingdom more than I built up God's kingdom. That I built up my ministry more than I built up his ministry. That I built up the church, meaning meaning not the global church, not the family of God, but I built a church more than I built the church that I cared more about what people thought of me more than I cared about what people thought about the truth. This man ministered, and many books are written in him, and yet he is quoted over and over and over again by saying, may I not do everything that I've been doing only to stand before the throne of God and everything that I've done when his eyes, that John the Revelator says they burn like fire, when those eyes pierce what I present to him as my works of faith for the kingdom that I'm not standing knee deep in ashes. May us all get that kind of provoking of the Holy Spirit. So this is what it says. These are the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Jesus has just been ministering. He has been ministering to, uh, if you go, I don't want you to turn there, but if you go back a chapter or two, he has been having this, uh, for a lack of better terminology, this confrontation, if you will, to the Pharisees. And there's been this dialogue and this going back and forth and accusations, if you will. And, and Jesus is speaking here in Mark 13, and he begins to change the subject a bit, and he begins to talk about the end times, and he begins to talk about, um, and he's telling them what is about to happen with his own personal life, but he's shrouding it, if you will, with parables so that, <coughs> so that they can't see with the carnal mind clearly But if you have revelation of the Spirit, you can hear exactly what Jesus is saying. My friends and church today, that is still how God operates. If you try try to understand with your carnal mind the moving of the Spirit and what God is saying, you are going to fall flat on your face because you cannot understand the Word of God or the Spirit of God with a carnal mind. You must lay carnality down and allow your spirit to come alive and say, God, this don't understand it, but something down in here, it's just speaking loud and clear to me. I don't know how it's going to happen, but right in here somewhere in the pit of my belly, flip-flops are happening, and I know what you said, and I believe what you said, and what you said, Jesus, is going to come to pass. So they heard him with their ears. But in their carnal mind, they could not understand it. And so Jesus begins to speak of the end times. And again, he's shrouding it with a parable. And this is what he begins to say in verse 32. He says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. What will happen? The things that he previously just tried to explain to them. He says, however, no one knows that day or that hour when these things will happen. And he begins to tell you who doesn't know, not even the angels in heaven. And he says this, not even the son of man, speaking of himself, 
only the Father knows. Now here, let me clear up a little something. You can keep it right there. Let me clear up a little something. Jesus right here is speaking from his humanity. He is saying, hold on, because I'm about to, the Lord's about to drop something on all of us, because if he's been provoking me with it, I want him to provoke you with it. What Jesus was saying in his humanity is this. Now that he has died on the cross, was buried, resurrected, and now ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father, has sent his Son, he is not saying, I will never know because our Messiah and our King cannot have a resurrected body, a resurrected mind, the mind of the Father, sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I, and not know something. He would not be omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing if he didn't know one piece. He was speaking of in my current state of being a man, God in flesh, God who dwells among us. This is what he was saying when he said, not even the Son of Man knows that day or hour. He said, I have been willing as a human to submit my knowledge to the Father that I don't have to know it all. I just trust that God is going to work everything out according to his, oh, I wish somebody would get on this train with me. And many people in the church today, the one thing that we have a hard time submitting to, we submit to the cross for salvation. We submit to the altar for repentance. But there's not very many people in 2022 that will submit their will and their knowledge to the Father and just say, God, I trust you. God, I trust you know it. I don't have to know it. God, I trust that you know it. Jesus was giving us an example how to deny even our own intellectualism. Because the church in these last 10, 15 years has swooed us in a way and swayed us in a way to believe that if I gain enough knowledge, if I just understand God more, if I can just figure it out better, then my life will become victorious. And that is a lie from hell. We are to mimic our Savior, what he did on this earth. And Jesus said, Father, I don't even know the complete plan you have. Not because I'm not God, but because I willingly as a human... Submit all authority, all knowledge, all power, all understanding about my life to you. And then he told his disciples, and if you've seen me do it, you know the Father. And if you know me, you know the Father. And I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to send somebody who lives in me, is going to live in you, and he's going to help you to have grace in order to do the works that I have done. Oftentimes, we only think of his works as miracles. That's part of it. But some of his works was faith in his father. 
Some of his works was trusting in his father. Some of his works was relinquishing the education that he even astounded the rabbis at 12 years old. That's why Paul said, if you follow me, you're following Christ. Because one of the most intellectual people of his time was Paul. And he said, my knowledge is no better than a heap of dung. What I've achieved in the religious world is no better than what you see laying on the ground. That's what he said. What was he doing? He was submitting his intellect and his knowledge and his understanding. And he's saying, God, I don't have to understand it all. God, there's going to be some things that are mysterious to me in your kingdom. And that's okay. I'm still going to trust you. And sometimes on a, not, not so much on a Sunday, because we all feel the presence of God moving now. And we're just, I'm, I'm not talking about Sundays, but I'm talking about Tuesday afternoon. I'm talking about Thursday night. I'm talking about during the week when you don't have an amazing worship set, when you don't have somebody to come along and pray, you can say within yourself, I don't have to understand it all. But I trust you, God, that you're doing your will in my life. Look what Jesus says then. He goes on to say, and since you don't know, that time will come Look, he's warning, be on guard, stay alert. Jesus is speaking to some very specific things. He just had been teaching them about what is going to happen, and he shrouded with this covering of a parable. But he's telling them exactly what to be aware of and what to look for. And he's saying, stay alert, be on guard. Look what he says, the coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated. He goes back into another parable. He's saying, I want to tell you about what is about to transpire, but because you have carnal minds, you won't understand it. So I'm going to use a carnal situation so that you can wrap your mind around what I'm saying about is what is literally about to transpire. The son of man can be illustrated by the story of a man who goes on this long trip. He's speaking of himself. That, that he is the master, he is the savior in this parable, and that I'm about to go away, I'm about to go on a trip, if you will. And when he left, he gives to each of his servants uh, instructions about the work they were to do. In other words, the master of the home, the master of the field, whatever, whatever you want, the master of the kingdom, the lord of the kingdom, he's about to go away. But, the, but before he goes away, he is going to give each servant, each person whom is in his kingdom, an assignment. And your responsibility is to make sure that your assignment is completed. Look at your neighbor say, it's time to complete the assignment. It's going to take your whole life to complete that assignment that God has spoken to your life. And when he left, he gave some of them instructions about the work they were to do. Look, and he told the gatekeepers. 
What did he tell them? He said, to watch for his return. Go on next. You too must keep watch. He's reiterating this, this being on guard and being watchful. For you don't know when the master of the household is going to return. You don't know if it's going to be the evening, at midnight, before the dawn, at daybreak. In other words, he's mentioning four watches of the night. And he's saying, you're not going to know when I'm coming back. He's using a parable, but they would have understood what he was saying. And then he says, don't let when the, when the master of the house comes back, don't let him find you sleeping. Because when he comes back, there's a responsibility. Now, see, this is where, in my opinion, the church of the old kind of didn't emphasize this part. They were real good about emphasizing about having your heart right before Lord so that when Jesus returns, you're ready to go with him. That part they had right. The part that they didn't emphasize quite as well was when God comes back, there's going to be a responsibility and a part that the church plays. And Jesus said what that responsibility is. You are to be a gatekeeper, and your responsibility is to watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Not just on Sundays, but watch and pray on Monday. And pray on Tuesday because you don't know if he's going to show up pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. And we have all these convoluted discussions. And honestly, I don't care when he shows up. My assignment is not to predict when he shows up. My assignment is to be a gatekeeper and to watch and pray. Because my job is to hear and know when he is coming. Why? <laughs> so that I can open the door. For the past two weeks, I've told you using the history of the gatekeepers in the Old Testament, one of their primary uh, functions, one of their primary duties, if you will, was to know when to open the door and when to close the door. One of their primary uh, responsibilities as a gatekeeper was to keep watch. Because not everybody could keep watch. Not everybody was in a position to keep watch. Some things the world is going to think is okay. Oh, just let it on in. There's going to be some things that immature Christians, listen... There's going to be some things in the culture that immature Christians don't see it right away. And they're going to say, Pastor, let it on in. But that's when you need gatekeepers and watchmen on the wall that can see afar off. And it looks cute right here at the door. But I've seen it before it even got to the door. Close the gate. Close the gate. Don't let it in. Close the gate. Now, in the natural, they were to keep actual individuals out because they were Jewish people they were to keep the enemy which was actual other nations out that is not how it operates in the New Testament we don't keep individuals out we keep spirits and wickedness and things that try to usurp the authority of God out 
We need some men and women of righteousness and truth to say, close the gate because that wickedness is not coming in the church. Close the gate because that evil is not coming in the church. Close the gate because that unrighteousness is not coming in the gate. And then they had to open it. That's why Jesus said, you have to watch and you have to pray. You have to watch. Because if you're not watching, it tells me this. Let me, I, I put this on my paper. I want to say it to you how I believe the Lord give it to me. <clears throat> he said, when Jesus comes, he must, the gatekeeper he's speaking of, must be ready to open the gate. So in Mark 13, 36, when Jesus stated, don't let me find you sleeping, indicates that there will be a season right before the returning of the Lord. There will be a propensity to fall asleep. If there was not going to be a season right before whenever the return of the Lord is, of, of everybody just being wide awake and discernment flowing, Jesus had no reason to even teach them about this. Why? Because he was teaching about what is going to happen after he goes away and right before he comes back. Is that not what he's teaching about? And so he is warning them, there's going to be a season right before I come back that it's going to be the propensity. In other words, it's going to be the norm to fall asleep. Don't let the gatekeepers fall asleep. The other thing he said was Jesus was giving us a warning sign by what he is saying. He also says we must hear him knocking in order to letting him in, which indicates there will be distractions in your hearing. So he's telling you to watch and pray. Watch so that you can see the signs of the times, but also pray that there's a discerning that you know when to open the gate and when to shut the gate. Let the discernment of the Spirit tell you. There's a scripture, put this up in Revelation 3.20. Jesus here is stand, or speaking, and he's speaking to John the Revelator through his uh, vision that he has, and he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice... And opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is not speaking evangelistic here. I know that this verse is often used towards sinners. But Jesus is talking to the church here. That means somebody in the church, in this particular church, didn't open the door right. They had a gatekeeper who was keeping the gate, but they wasn't allowing the glory of the Lord to flow in. Oh, let it not be said of the churches in America that we have gatekeepers in our churches who will not let the glory of the Lord in. Let it not be said in America any longer that there is gatekeepers in the house that will not allow the function of Holy Spirit in the gate. Y'all got real quiet right there. <clears throat> Jesus uses this phrase 
in actually two other gospels. In the book of John 10, verse 3, he talks about being a gatekeeper. And he's using an illustration of him being the shepherd or the good shepherd. And uh, uh, at this particular moment, he's referring to the sheep as being the, the nation of Israel. But then if you keep reading, he says this, and this is what confounds their mind. He says, I have other sheep that you know not So he's speaking to them rightly about the sheep of Israel. But then if you keep reading down in chapter 10, he says, but this is where you don't get it. You ain't the only sheep. He says the gatekeeper, a lot of folks uh, attribute this to be God the Father, but not so. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. And the sheep recognize his voice. And come into him. Oh, look at this. And he calls his sheep by name. And it leads them out. Pastor Mika, how do I know if it's the Holy Ghost speaking to me? Or if it's just a demonic spirit? How do I know if it's the Messiah prompting and urging me? Because Jesus knows your name. And he will always use your name. Because in that day, biblical shepherds, because they were ostracized from the normal culture, they they didn't get to mingle with a lot of just the normal society. They needed communion. And they needed fellowship outside of like they might have two or three other shepherd friends. So what they would do is they would commune with their sheep. And they would name their sheep. This is Harry. This is Fluffy. Whatever. That's why Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And I have already named my sheep. And I call them by their name, which tells me this. He doesn't call me by my sin. He doesn't call me by my failure. He doesn't call me by my mistakes. And he doesn't call me by my past. He calls me by who he has identified me by. So the next time the enemy tries to bring up something from your past, You need to get a little bit of that stuff that you say to your family and start using it on him. Get your name out your mouth. That is not who I am. See, we are bold when it comes to people. But for whatever reason, the body of Christ, we shrink back. When it comes to the things of the world or the things of the kingdom, We say God is all-powerful, but we don't walk like he's all-powerful. And we say Satan has no authority, but all he has to do is sneeze. And we just go back like he has all power and authority. An acquaintance pastor friend of mine, not really a friend, I just know of him, did an amazing, uh, I don't think I could ever do this, but I'm going to tell you what he did to make a point. He comes in to his church, which is a good, good crowd of people. And he has 
his iPad up there. He has his Bible up there. And then he has some raggedy old book right up here. And he starts into his sermon. And at some point in this sermon, to make a point, to uh, just kind of almost provoke the people, he grabs this little raggedy old book. And he says, I was in the thrift store the other day, and I noticed this book, and I picked it up. And this book is, is some kind of satanic witch spells. And it intrigued me, and so I started flipping through. And the, the spells, the, the seances, the, the chantings that you are to repeat, and if you just repeat it a certain amount of time with a certain inflex of your voice, the enemy goes out and... And he said, one really intrigued me. And he flipped it over and he said, if you don't mind, I would like to read this today. <laughs> and he, he said, people started doing, what, the pastor's about to read a spell. The pastor's about to read a spell. Cover your ears, cover your eyes, get under the seat, put a blanket over your head. Don't let it hit my eyes. Don't let it hit my mind. And before they started to get up and actually leave, he said, I'm just kidding. This is just whatever book it was. And then he grabbed the Bible. And he said, y'all reacted to more what authority you thought some book about spells had then you react to just the simplistic reading and authority of the word of God. By his stripes you are healed. God has given you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. If you will preach the... And he started just going through scriptures. And I was like, man, God, that is so true. We don't say things like that, but when it comes right down to the raw knowledge of it, sometimes we fear the demonic realm more than we put faith in the truth of the word of God. Now, I'm not saying play with the demonic realm because it's real. Don't play with it. But certainly understand that the God and the Holy Spirit that lives in you is greater than anything that could ever come against you. Don't open a gate to it. Close the gates. Shut off the music. Shut off the TV or whatever it is. Sometimes it's conversation. Shut that off. You are to guard yourself from that. But don't be afraid of him. We are living in a time like no other, and yet the scriptures testify about the very time that we are living in. What was once called good is now called evil and vice versa. We are living in that time. People seeking out leaders, and they're seeking out mentors to tell them what they want to hear and what they will agree with, with how they're feeling, and they get angry and upset if you just give them scripture because that's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted you to comfort their feeling. <laughs> they wanted you to comfort their wound. 
not even recognizing that the presence of the Lord has departed. That somewhere along the gatekeepers of the church has let stuff in that should not have been let in. And has closed off the door to the glory of God, the thing that can eradicate the wrong things that got let in. And the reason why it's departed, speaking of the glory of Lord, I'm speaking of not the Lord walked away, but there's a difference in conducting a service and just by faith understanding that he's omnipresent and worshiping him to a degree where his manifested presence shows up like he did this morning. There is a difference, you know. And so uh, the reason why that glory, that manifestation of his glory, why it has departed often and I believe almost solely is due to the transgressions of those whom worship him. See, we like to blame a lot of things when we're in the church about why this isn't happening anymore or why that. But I'm almost 100% 100 convinced it's because of the transgressions of those who worship him. Those who say they are believers, yet they carry within them things that they are not willing to repent of. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about carrying things in your soul that you're unwilling to repent of. I'm not talking about did you pray a prayer of repentance and when you die you're going to heaven. I'm not talking about that part. That is one altar of repentance. I'm talking about born again believers who say they worship God but are unwilling to repent of things that they carry and they say, God, I don't intellectually feel the need to repent of this. And yet, in this same time, in this same season we're in, God is calling forth righteousness. He's calling forth men and women who will stand for truth. He's calling for men and women that will stand up, that truth will fly in the face of emotions. That truth will fly in the face of feelings. That truth will fly in the face of lies being spoken to you or over you and even in circumstances and situations. God is looking for some men and women called gatekeepers to stand up who are watching and praying. And sometimes even in your own house. Sometimes even in your own self. You got to be truthful with yourself. I'm glad I have three people saying amen to that one. You got to be truthful to yourself. Amika, what have you allowed in that has caused the glory of the Lord to stand afar off? Because it would be easy for me to say, it's Tim. Sometimes, if I'm being honest, I say, Tim, it's you. But it can't always be him. It can't always be. You understand? 
There comes a time when you have to get real with yourself and you have to allow the truth, provoking truth and righteousness of the word to say, if I am a gatekeeper in the church, if I am a gatekeeper in the community, then I, along with the Holy Ghost, am a gatekeeper to my own soul. What have I let in? Now, we are quick. We are quick to recognize Woo, I was watching this porn, and man, it has defiled me. Or man, I went back to the bottle, or I went back to some prescriptions, or I went back. We are quick. We are quick to respond to those things on that list. But there are churches full of believers who won't repent of prideful thinking, who won't repent of jealous tendencies, who won't repent of a gossiping tongue, who won't repent of thinking I know more than God. Y'all are quiet right here. It's the transgressions of those whom serve him that has kept the glory of the Lord. And we don't even realize we are the gatekeepers who have closed that out. In the Old Testament, the gatekeeper was appointed by an, I'm not going to read this, but you can read it in uh, 1 Chronicles 9, 17 through 22. I'm just going to summarize it for you right here. That in the Old Testament, the gatekeeper was appointed by three specific anointed positions. Some of those that are mentioned were appointed by the prophet Samuel, the seer, Scripture says. Some of those were appointed that are mentioned were appointed by the priest. And some of those were appointed by King David. They were all anointed positions, and so the gatekeepers were appointed by the one who was anointed in a set position. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ fulfilled all three of those positions. He is both, he is all three, the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. And he says, I have given you the keys to the kingdom of God. I am the one, this is Jesus speaking, I am the one who has anointed you to be a gatekeeper. The Holy Spirit spoke to me specifically and strongly when I was in Israel. I have anointed new life to be gatekeepers of my glory, of my presence. So if we are to fulfill that role, we must understand the responsibility of that role. One of the main things is, is to keep contamination out. One of the things is, is to be on guard. Jesus said this, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Then in Matthew 16, put up 16, 18, and 19. Put that up. I think I give that to you. Look what he says. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys. Look, look, there's a small word here that we, we misinterpret. We say it like this. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But it does not say to the kingdom of heaven. It says of the kingdom of heaven. 
There's a big difference from getting a key to something and getting a key of something. Getting a key to something means the key does not do me any good until I get to the place of wherever it works. But getting the key of something means I don't have to be in heaven. I already got the kingdom or the key of the authority that governs heaven. That means I can be here on earth and have the same authority as when I walk the pearly gates and have the authority. Because I don't have the key to something, I have the key of something. I can operate in that authority right now. And then he says, here's one of those keys that whatever you bind will be bound in heaven and Whatever you loose will be loose in heaven. You know what he was saying here? You're the gatekeeper. Whatever you allow. But understand this. These words are not just a magical piece of phraseology. These, these scripture just cannot be quoted based on what you memorized as a child in children's church. This scripture is not the end all and the means by which you have a blessed comfort life. You have to understand who it is that's given you the key of the kingdom so that you can walk in the name of the one who has given you the key of that kingdom. And that's why many say, well, I prayed and I bound that thing, but you didn't know who the name was that you was binding it in. And the enemy knew that you didn't know. How did you not know? Because we have shut the gate of his manifested glory and the spirit of God moving in our life. Ooh. Binding and loosing means to allow or disallow. It means to open up or shut up. He's calling, the, he's calling you a gatekeeper. And he says, I've given you the key of it. In Luke 12... Verse 39, I'm almost done here. He told him, he said, let me, flip, let me flip to this. Luke 12, verse 39. Again, he's talking about <clears throat> faithful servants and their responsibility. And the first thing in verse 30, 35, let me tell you this. It says this, let your waist be girded. We know that to be girded with truth because it correlates with what Paul talks about, that you put on the belt of truth, that you gird up the loins of truth. He says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Your responsibility is to walk in truth and to keep a burning heart. Your responsibility is to walk in truth and to keep a burning heart posture for the Lord. And if you jump down to verse 36, because again, he's talking about watching and being aware and that the gatekeeper to immediately open the door when I return. But look what he says in verse 36. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not look at this and not allowed his house to be broken. He would not have allowed his house to be broken. 
I go a lot of places, and the Lord has allotted me the honor to minister to a lot of people. And I tell you consistently, no matter if it's just a women's conference, if it's a revival of a fairly large church, if it's a revival or a gathering of a district that I'm preaching at, the one thing that always stands out to me through the eyes of the Spirit is we have a lot of believers that are broken. They're broken. They're believers. They love God. They're working in the church. They're doing ministry. But they are broken. They are broken because something came in the gate. Because either somebody over them was not watching and praying or they themselves were not watching and praying and something slipped in the gate. And it says, had he had known, he would have watched more intently. Had he had known that something was going to slip in and wound, he would not have allowed. He would have shut it. He would have shut it down. He would have shut the gate. He would have shut the windows. He would have locked the doors. He would have bound. He would have loosed. He would have allowed. And he would have disallowed. The Holy Spirit is the gatekeeper to your soul. But you have a responsibility as well. Holy Spirit is going to prompt you. He is going to prod you. How many has been prodded by the Holy Ghost? (laughs) The Holy Spirit will provoke you. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit provokes you through another individual. Most of the time, the Holy Spirit doesn't provoke you just within yourself. When he's in here, he is prodding you. He's just poking. Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't go that way. Don't stand afar off while the Spirit is moving. He's he's prodding you. Go to the altar. Lay your will down. Lay that stubborn heart down. Just lift your hands up. Just quit caring about what people think about you. That's, that's prompting. That's prodding. But provoking usually comes from the outside. And we're cursing the person that the Holy Ghost is using to provoke us. Now, that doesn't mean the person is right. And it doesn't mean that the Holy Ghost isn't going to handle it. But what I have found in my life... Prodding comes from the inside. Provoking comes from the outside. And we're like, well, my God, I wish I could just get away from that person. And the Holy Ghost is saying, no, I am provoking you through that person because I'm trying to draw you in closer to be a watcher and a intercessor. We have a responsibility, even though the Holy Ghost is the keeper of our soul. Put this slide up. We want the visitation of God without the responsibility. We want the visitation of God. There's believers all over America that I truly believe have a genuine heart when they say, God, we want your glory and we want your revival. But we want the visitation without the responsibility. We don't want the responsibility of adapting or adjusting how we do life. 
We don't want the responsibility or the adjusting of how we do church. (sighs) We don't want the responsibility or adapting of adjusting of how we walk out our Christian faith in this life of this journey called life. We want the visitation without the responsibility. The Holy Ghost is responsible for the visitation. But we have a responsibility to adapt to, confine to, transform to. Because of all that, we we live stuck in a cycle waiting on the next move of God. Don't think about another church. Don't think about another person. I told you last week, often when we hear sermons like this, we're like, well, good Lord Jesus, they should have been here because they needed that. Listen, they may very well need that. And the church across town may very well need some pastor to preach this. But that's not what's happening right here, right here today. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Prompt me. We get stuck And we live in a stuck cycle where we're always waiting on another move of God. What's going to come? What's going to go? Because Holy Ghost is doing his responsibility, but we're not doing ours. But overall, the wineskin, Jesus talked about us becoming new wineskins to hold the new wine. The wineskin, or you could say it like this, the operating system remains the same. We want the new train with old tracks. (laughs) We want the new wine with the old skin. We want the new revival with the old program. We want the new thing and wave of the ministry of God without having to change anything that we call church. Y'all are quiet. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. When God does move in power... We must be willing to respond with that intensity. There was an intense power of the Holy Spirit in here today. It wasn't jumpy. It wasn't shouty. Sometimes it kind of ebbed and flowed in what I'll call just the sound of, of, of just intensifying and kind of going down as quiet and loudness. But it wasn't, it wasn't vibrant as far as just, Wah! but it was intense. And our responsibility is to match his intensity. And I believe part of what we need to repent of is, God, I didn't match your intensity today. We say, oh, God, oh, God, we had good service. Thank goodness for Pastor Ryan, man. He came in here. Man, it was a good worship service. But did you match the intensity of the spirit? Did your worship match the intensity? Did your openness and vulnerability to God, did your repentance to God match the intensity of the spirit moving? Not just simply more of the same or just simply more church services. We must seek the how. The how. This is what I mean by that. God, how are you calling us to change? What are we doing to accommodate the movement of the Spirit? How am I to change? What is the solution and what is the answer to chaos 
and crisis in the earth right now. In my opinion, it is for gatekeepers to bring in and usher in the glory of God. We would call it and term it revival. The spirit of revival. Gatekeepers who know what to bind and what to loose. In other words, gatekeepers who know what to allow and what not to allow. The glory of God is going to come through you. We erroneously think the glory of God is coming down from heaven to touch earth. God already did that by the form of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. The next move and the next revival is not us waiting for God to come down to earth. He is waiting for the gatekeepers to open up the gate even of their own soul and allow the glory of God to come out. Let me prove this to you. Put up Psalms 46, verse 1 through 3, first of all. This is David. Look what he says. David is about to describe to you the climate of what he's living in. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help. What is David saying? I'm in trouble. Everywhere I look, there's chaos. There's turbulence. <coughs> there's crisis. And, but he is my refuge and he is my help. Therefore, look, I don't have to fear. Even though the earth be removed, even though the mountains be carried. In other words, even though everything on earth is shaking and everything in government is trembling. Though the waters roar and be troubled. Though everything is shaking. Hold on, don't, don't go to the next verse yet. David is describing the climate of the culture in which he's living in. Notice it's not good. It's not rosy and cozy. He's saying things are shaking. Enemies are coming against me. I thought I had it okay in my family, but my own family is trying to steal the throne out from under me. I thought I only had to worry about the enemy on the outside. Now it looks like I got to worry about the enemy on the inside. And things are shaken and things are topsy-turvy. There's crises and chaos on every hand. And then he says, but stop and pause for a moment. <laughs> Can I just tell new life? Y'all need, let's just stop and pause for a moment. Don't jump on Facebook that quick. Don't jump on whatever it is you jump on. Don't let the words fly out your mouth. Pause for a moment. Take a pause. That's what he's saying right here. Surely you and I both corporately and personally can relate to what David is talking about with the crises, the governmental situation, the enemy situation, the family situation, the church situation. We can identify with that. Undeniably, there are seasons in life where it feels like the earth is shaking and the waves are roaring and the, the, the storms are going to overtake us. But right after David describes what's going on and he says to stop and pause and reflect, there is a solution. That solution is both for society and it is for you personally. The stuff that tried to shake the gates, there is an answer. How many's had some things at the gate shaken? How many's had some personal things shaken? David said there's an answer. What's the answer? Verse 4. There 
is a river. There is a river. There is a river that's flowing. Jesus confirmed what David testified about. Jesus, when the, the ceremony was going on, and they were singing a lot of the songs and psalms, and the high priest would have had, they would have had this big, huge parade because all of the people from all Israel, like this would have been a seven-day parade. They would have had all these people, some of the priests, and definitely the high priest would have had his robes and his garments and all the hoopla and all the accolades and all just the, the, the parade and the, the celebration of it all. And he would have had some kind of picture, some kind of... Uh, pot of some sort and he would have had all these people following and they would have been singing about the glory of the Lord. They would have been singing about the rivers that don't run dry. Understand they're singing this in the middle of the desert and when they're singing this there was no rivers. They were prophetically speaking about a river that wasn't running through there yet. And as they go to the pool they dip into the water and they march back and they would have marched up the steps of the temple and they was about to pour out a drink offering to God. Jesus says, excuse me a minute, fellas. Excuse me, I have an announcement to make. And he would have made his voice echo and he would have said this, all who are thirsty, Come to me and drink, for out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's why they were so angry with him. They were, Jesus was shaking up the church program. Jesus was saying, fellas, I know this is how you've done it. For all these years, but the tides have turned and the seasons have changed and revival has stepped in the midst. Let me share this with you. He said, out of your heart flows the river. Put that, put that last verse back up there. In the times of crises, in the times of chaos, David says, stop and rest. Ponder. Why? Watch and pray because you are the gatekeeper. What are you the gatekeeper to? Not to knowledge. Not to look spiritual. Not to be the next prophet of the hour. Not to be the greatest worship. That's not what God's called you to be the gatekeeper of. Stop and pause. Why? Because you're the gatekeeper. What are you gatekeeping? The rivers. The rivers called the Holy Ghost. The rivers that people are still thirsty and they need somebody to flow with river. I'm closing my Bible. Put up is the very is the very next slide a first picture? Is that the very next slide? There we go. Let me show you some pictures because I think sometimes visual things help us to connect to Revelation. This right here is one of the pictures I took when I was over in Israel. 
and the building that's predominant right in the middle, right behind that gate or that iron fencing, if you will, is it's one of the places that we went and toured. That particular building is called the Church of All Nations. And it is, it is meant for, you know, to come and tour and reflect and, and you hear about the history and things. Now, let me just uh, notify you of this. One of the things that is very intriguing about Jerusalem specifically, Israel as a whole, but specifically Jerusalem, is, and I might have mentioned this, is it is considered, we know that it's a holy place, but what is intriguing is there are at least four sects of religion groups of religion that also consider it to holy, to be holy. One is the Jews, obviously. One is the Muslims. One is the Christians. And one is the Armenians. And so they're all kind of taking claim, if you will, of this land for the different reasons. So if and when you ever get to go over there, you must know your Bible. Because otherwise you will be deceived. Because some of the flavor, some of the influence of what they try to tell you happen is coming from the theology of catechism. And it is, it, it is, it is not righteous. I'm not trying to demean anybody's religion, but I mean, I just have to speak the truth. It's not the truth of the word of God. And you must know the truth of the word of God. But I want to tell you about something about this specific. I said that because in a couple, in a couple of pictures here, you're going to see this and you'll be like, what in the world's going on? But this is a church that's called the Church of All Nations. And it is actually inside what we know to be the Garden of Gethsemane. Go ahead and put up the next slide. This is a close-up version. This is just the, uh, the architect of it is exquisite. So even if you don't understand any of it, just by beholding the beauty of it, it's just like breathtaking. You're like, you're standing in awe of this church building and you're just like whoa it's almost breathtaking and then you hear the history and hear some of the things some of the things you just have to kind of let go off of your mind and and just like okay I'm just gonna let you believe that I know that's not the truth but whatever and you just take a picture of the beauty of the building but uh so there is contention here about the holiness of it and it stands in the garden of Gethsemane and this beautiful mosaic structure is situated outside of the eastern gate. So when you are standing on that uh, platform, when you are standing under those arches and you would be looking this way, you would be looking square into the face of the eastern gate. It's the place where Jesus is going to return. They've tried to block it up. They've tried to cement it over so that Jesus can't come through that gate. (laughs) they have made the land just outside of the gate a big old fat graveyard because they understand certain high priests can't touch grave body or dead bodies but they forget that when the resurrected Christ comes back cement is not going to keep them out and the dead bodies ain't going to keep them out because they will be resurrected before he even shows up So it's facing the eastern gate. And it's the old walled city of Jerusalem. And it sits, you can't really see it here, but right behind that there is a hill or a mountain 
that is called the base of the Mount of Olives. Go ahead and turn to the next page here. So this is where this is the entrance to Gethsemane. You get to go through this entrance. And before you get to that church, and there's a whole tour that takes place there, you're, you're in this garden. And in this garden, there's olive trees. Uh, is that the next one of the olive trees? This is one in particular. Uh, they believe this tree and a couple other trees are close to 1,000 years old. That's why they have it blocked off. You can't get to it. This would have been somewhere in the vicinity of where Jesus would have, would have laid himself on a rock and said, Father, please let this cup pass from me. Inside that building, now you just have to take this part with a grain of sand. It could be and it may not be. Put up the next one. This right here, like a right, right here, they're kind of conducting a Christian slash Catholic mass here. That's what's going on. But uh, that, that rock right in the middle, they believe to be the actual rock. That's why they've preserved it. So they built this church around this. They believe this, at least in, in this religion, to be the rock that Jesus would have laid himself on, called the rock of agony, where he would have prayed that this cup passed from me. Go ahead and flip one more. This is just in the garden there, and, and somebody has etched out a statue of Jesus throwing himself on the rock. Right outside of this church is a small grove of garden where those extremely oak tre- or olive trees would be there. And as I was there, we went to this particular place twice just because some places just, I just wanted to return. And so because we didn't have a big group, we only had a few, when we went back to this place, we kind of went our own way and just kind of did our own thing for a few moments, maybe 30, 40, 50 minutes. And so as I was standing there and I was just kind of looking both at this rock and at the trees that I showed you, I was looking, I was pondering, I was meditating on what had transpired in this very place. So things, scripture was coming alive. Things was coming alive. We took our time here and I even began to pray just quietly. It, It was more of a thoughtful prayer, just a thinking, just allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to me using the scripture of my memory. And this is what I even whispered out loud. I said, God, this is where the battle was won. It got finished on the cross when he died. But that's not where the battle was won. The battle was won right here. And I had the opportunity to at least, if nothing else, be in the vicinity of where he would have laid himself on the rock called the Rock of Agony. Why was it called the Rock of Agony? Not just simply because he prayed, not just because he prayed so intensely that his sweat was like drops of blood. That's not the reason. That was the symptom. 
It's called the rock of agony because at that moment, his humanity was crying out to not have to submit to the authority of God. It was not called agony because of what was about to transpire throughout the night and even the next day with the cross. That was going to be painful. That was going to be shameful. That was going to be gruesome. That was going to hurt his flesh. That was going to reject his feelings because people that he had been doing ministry now with for for three and a half years was not going to be there for him. His own brothers was not going to protect him. He would have had his mama, some other women, and one disciple out of 12. And one of them is the reason why he's in the situation that he is in. It's not called the rock of agony because of all of that. It's called the rock of agony because his humanity had to win the battle in submission to the divine plan of God. His flesh, his plans, that's why he prayed, God, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. We know that he drank the cup. And after he said, not my will, but thine be done, it said ministering angels came and ministered to him. One other time when he went through the 40 days of fasting, it says when he got to the end and he was triumphant over temptation, that ministering angels came to minister. That launched him into his ministry. This ministering was going to launch him into his purpose of why he came. I'm telling you, new life, we want the ministering of the angels, but we don't want the wilderness. The ministering angels come after the wilderness. That launches you into your ministry. And we want the divine purpose of God for our life. But nobody wants to lay on the rock of agony. We preach about purpose almost every Sunday. We preach about destiny. The internet is flooded with sermons called fulfill your destiny, fulfill your purpose, know your purpose in God. And there's a truth to that. But I'm telling you, you cannot achieve that until you throw yourself on the rock called agony. Not because God has beaten you up, but because God understands your humanity must submit to the cup that he has. Y'all feel this the way I feel this? And as I was pondering this and looking over this and just reminiscing and even thought-provoking prayer, I said, Jesus, you took on the sin of the world. And you're only asking me to forgive one person. I'm telling you, I had a moment here. And I wasn't shaking. I wasn't falling out on the ground. I was staring at a thousand-year-old olive tree, but the Holy Ghost was prodding. He took on every sin, every shame, 
every form of rejection, both spiritual and familial and just natural. And he's asking us to forgive one family member. He, he's asking us to forgive one coworker. He's asking us to forgive one church member. He's asking us to forgive one ex. Just one. That's why it's called the rock of agony. Jesus said, had the gatekeeper known when the thief was coming in, he would not have allowed his house to be broken. The thing, I I believe there's probably many things, but the thing that the Holy Spirit even started prompting me even Tuesday and Wednesday was this. If you and I, both as a church and as individuals, will throw ourselves on the rock, the rock of Jesus, and mimic Jesus in saying, God, I don't have to understand everything. I trust you. I don't have to intellectualize it. I don't have to, I don't have to reason it out. I, I just I don't even have to know it. I throw myself on the rock. And it's hard for me, Jesus. The one thing the Holy Spirit was prompting me hard this week about many in our church is the gates have been closed up because there is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is going to open the gates of the river. When you forgive, it's going to open the gates of the river. We've been worshiping, we've been singing, we've been preaching, we've been prophesying. We have felt the manifestation of the presence of God. But I'm telling you, the river doesn't come until you throw yourself on the rock and say, God, who is that person that I need to forgive? I'm telling you, we can gloss it over. We can say it's not me. We can say, I've already done it. I'm telling you, I know what I heard from the Holy Spirit on Tuesday and Wednesday. The moment we start forgiving one another and forgiving those that have hurt us, have rejected us, how do we know that Jesus won the battle? Because when he was in the midst of his crisis, his pain, his agony, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. How could he say that? He threw himself on the rock of agony. He threw himself on the rock of agony. How do I know this to be true? A couple days ago, I heard this testimony. This Catholic woman, been Catholic all her life, loves the Lord, serving him to the best of her ability. She gets filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in tongues, but fills the prompting of the Holy Spirit to stay in her Catholic church so that God could use her to initiate a move of God with other Catholic believers. 
one of her friends asked her, do you want to come to a mass worship? She said, yes, I'll come. She thought it was going to be like mass. She gets there, and it's like a Pentecostal worship service. (laughs) In the Catholic church. (laughs) Only without drums. (laughs) They were worshiping. The presence of God started moving. It wasn't a Catholic priest that was orchestrating it. It was some other minister slash pastor. I don't know what his background was. But as he is hearing the Spirit, he steps up to the podium and announces, I feel the presence of God in here to heal people. God is wanting to heal physical bodies. This lady who had just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, she understands she's had this back problem. She steps up. The pastor, minister, whoever says, can somebody lay their hand on their, would you bind? And she's like, yeah. So he has somebody lay hands on the back. He starts praying for healing because he knew what God was saying. But the moment he touched her, he touched her. The Holy Spirit said, don't pray for her back. Pray for the wound in her heart. He said, man, I want to pray for your back. But the Holy Ghost spoke to me, and I'm just going to ask you what question. What is that wound in your heart? She collapsed under the weeping and the grieving and the gushing. The gate was finally open. She began to express to those that were just personally ministering to her what that wound was. God touched the wound in the broken house. And when she stood up, her back was healed. What happened? Can God heal a back? Absolutely. He can do what he wants. But God understands that if you can heal the brokenness here, a lot of this will align up to the word of God. I firmly believe that when some of us start getting real with the Holy Ghost and we start throwing ourselves on the rock of agony and we say, God, I don't have to understand it, but if you're wanting me to drink from this cup, let me do it graciously. Let me do it righteously. And I just put my will down. I believe some of this stuff that we battle in the physical is going to start dropping off. Stand with me. Ryan, if you wouldn't mind coming for a moment. I know we've ministered. I know we've worshipped. But I feel the heaviness of the Spirit. And without too much moving around, without too much messing with your phones, just keep your eyes this way because I want to give you the opportunity to come throw yourself on the rock. Unless the Spirit of God prompts Pastor Tim or I to lay hands, I don't even feel led to pray for or over, because I believe this is an intimate time. Come, as Pastor Ryan starts playing, come, find yourself. If you can't kneel, come and sit on the chairs. If you can't kneel down, come, sit on the altars, like some of us do around here. You may kneel at the front up here. You may just need to stand in the presence of God. You come throw yourself on the rock that is Jesus, the rock of agony.